well, if you want the user to use this, it has to be valuable to them to help them know what to do next, not so much to help them uh, understand what they've already done. So there was like a temporal shift in the way that they were thinking about it, which was really cool. All right, everybody, welcome back to Founder Vision. I am speaking today with Miles Seralde. He is the head of product design at SetSail, which is setsail.co. How are you doing today, Miles? I'm doing great. Yeah, I see you've got some music stuff in the background. Brian said that you do a lot of jazz and you're a musician. Uh, musician is charitable. I uh, play around with instruments and sometimes there's cool stuff that comes out of it. <laughs> Nice. Well, that, that sounds like music. Sounds yeah. like how music is made. Indeed. Yeah. So how did you get started with set sale and what, what are you guys doing? Give me like a 30 second elevator pitch. Yeah, absolutely. So set sale, I've been at set sale for a grand long time of about four months now. So nice. I've been here uh, for four years in startup time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... Uh, SetSales kind of big positioning pitch is that um, we help kind of forward thinking sales leaders uh, accelerate revenue by exposing key moments in deal cycles and allowing those leaders to act around those key moments. So you can imagine that, um, you know, most sales activity is really well recorded. There's lots of sales stuff going back and forth all the time through uh, sales organizations, but that's a lot of noisy data. And what we do is help condense that data into stuff that matters by looking at correlations in the data with closed one uh, outcomes and deals and kind of expose that to sales managers and then allow sales managers to step on the gas around some of those behaviors by putting money behind them. So it's a more intelligent way to apply SPIF budgets uh, and also get a lot of visibility into what works and doesn't work in the sales cycle. So that's kind of what I've been up to at SetSail and um, wild, awesome ride. The team here is amazing. And uh, I was poached from my previous role by the amazing team. So that's great. Nice. Then, <laughs> yeah. What was the thing that sold you? So I saw that people really wanted to take human behavior and make it work for humans, mm. which was really cool. So that was one thing. As opposed to taking human behavior and making it work for profit machine making it work for behavioral change what's the yeah make it work for humans mean to you yeah for sure so i think like um the humans that we're applying it to directly instead of for some other humans that want to sell people stuff Mm. Um, so like rather than i'm working for a startup that uses a bunch of big data to help advertisers and other kind of third-party people understand how to sell things more quickly. I'm helping the people that are selling the things sell the things more quickly. Mm. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty direct. Um, And then also, candidly, I was just blown away by how cool the team is. So the founder is uh, deeply intelligent about how humans are. And as a designer, that's a big deal for me, Mm. right? I think um, part of the reason we're talking today is because there are founders that have a wide range of experience with design and i was really see like how much um uh weight the founder at set puts on design yeah tell me more about that what is 
What does that mean to you? And how did you recognize this in, in this conversation when you were being courted by this team? What made you really click? Aha, these people really understand and value design in the way that I do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think actually to do that, I maybe have to step back and talk about design as a discipline. Uh, and I think the big thing that most people recognize in early startup design is can you draw stuff? Mm. Right. And like that's kind of the like, the interview loop is can you draw these things? Hmm. The biggest thing that I loved about the interview loop at Sale was actually, it wasn't, can you draw these things? Can you reason through why you drew that thing? And like, that was kind of the, the tone of my interview with everyone. Um, additionally, you know, I did a little bit of, uh, of a presentation for them about how I might have solved a problem. And I put a lot of emphasis in the writing, which is something that I prefer to do as opposed to the drawing. And they recognized the value in the writing first and then saw how the drawing, like the one page of drawing that I did do flowed out of the writing. So like that was kind of a tactical signal to me. It was like, oh, actually, these guys prioritize the thinking. Mm -hmm. Also have identified that there's a gap in their thinking around kind of the user needs part of their business. And so that was super attractive to me. And also, you know, uh, lots of really smart people such that. I felt like I didn't have to double back and explain too much stuff, which um, maybe sounds conceited, but like this often happens. And so that was also a nice signal. <laughs> right. So it sounds like you, f- you felt like you were sort of on your, in, in your zone of, uh, I guess your, your zone of competence in what's interesting for you and not catching people up to speed all the time. But then you're also providing some value. And I'm, I'm imagining that when you saw this gap in their design thinking, how did they receive that in such a way that made you feel welcome? Yeah, I mean, I think they were really um, receptive to what I had pointed out and were looking for somebody to be able to crystallize and distill, like, where's the where's the gap in this piece? Um, and it was even just a small, like, they asked me for a small thing to see how I felt about it. And kind of going from this viewpoint of this is what we can build, they had built to more like, how is that relevant to the user on the, at the end? And like stitching that gap together, me presenting something around, well, if you want the user to use this, it has to be valuable to them to help them know what to do next, not so much to help them uh, understand what they've already done. So mm. there was like a temporal shift in the way that they were thinking about it, which was really cool. Um, and they kind of latched onto that and recognized that that was valuable and then here I am four months later building a team and trying to make sure we're uh, all running as fast as we can towards the highest value thing for the users. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So getting to that, that building a team part then. So you you joined the startup four months ago. Uh, <laughs> you're recognizing sort of this cultural match and this design thinking match and you're feeling valued and you're feeling like you have something to bring and you also feel like you're not having to bring everybody up to speed with you. And now you're at this point where you're building a team. And so how are you, how are you bringing this design thinking into the team building that you're doing? Yeah, so that's a great question. And uh, something that I've thought a lot about as I've built teams over the years, one of the things that I try to make sure I do is actually design a competency framework up front. And what that means is kind of like, here are the things that I expect designers to adhere to as they're part of my team. And also here are the things that I expect them to be able to do in collaboration with different parts of the company. So kind of... um, the, the answer 
it, the answer from me is always that I designed my way out of the, the problem or designed my way into one. Mm. So I've got like, you know, I've got a, uh, a big document that's about 11 pages long that has kind of a framework for these are the things that I expect people to be competent with on my team. And those are expressed in levels like uh, not yet proficient, proficient, strong, exceptional. And across those, there are kind of uh, statements of what people are able to do and how they get around doing those things. Um, but critically, I think the biggest piece that I always try to start with is the summary level of, you know, look, engineering is responsible for doing a thing. Product is responsible for figuring out why we're going to do something. Design is figuring out how we're going to do it. And then all three of us all come together to meet in the middle about what it actually is. And there's kind of this like business values and engineering constraints and shape and user need, mm -hmm. you know? And so, uh, building my team around that is like, this is the vertical that we own. These are the ways that we're going to own that and collaborate around it with everyone else. Yeah. So, um, so your team is going to be, uh, sort of spanning each of those different columns that you just described from engineering to design. It's not just a design team that you're putting together that operates in the larger structure. No, I mean, I'm working, I'm building my design team, uh, appear with the head of product management we're building okay. our teams together so, okay got it um and we already have as is typical with most uh startups we already have a pretty strong engineering core so there are some engineering managers that are already there and we're mm -hmm. kind of just now filling the seats to make a pod of engineering manager product manager product designer yeah yeah so i'm curious now from from sort of the customer journey perspective uh yep. what you were saying at the beginning in your 30 in your pitch was that there's all this data and the data is very noisy and you're basically providing, is it that you're cleaning up existing data or are you helping them hook into new data points that are cleaner and more readily available for an AI system to, to process? And what does that look like for new customers as they onboard? What do they have to change basically to? Yeah, so it's kind of a, it's a process where we, help them make sense of their existing stuff and we create kind of second level data products on what they already have um, using our proprietary data science stuff right so mm -hmm. i think um, uh, a lot of it is actually about making sure that people have access to the data that's important for example like most tools can tell you how many emails somebody during the course of the day that's not like, mysterious but because we're correlating data between the crm and email and calendar I'm able to tell you if a VP plus at some company that you're trying to sell to accepted a meeting with you that you sent an email about three hours before, mm. right? So like much more complex, much more nuanced data. Yeah. I think um, there's an obvious like user needs benefit there, which is that that allows me to say, okay, now that I have these like much more synthesized data points, um, how much of those correlate to closed one, right? So like, if I'm looking at my deal cycle over the last 12 months, oh, these deals that had at least five engagements from a VP or higher over the course of the deal closed at a much higher rate, then I don't need to be looking for like every email that's inbound, right? Yeah. I can just look at those emails from the VP or higher. Um, and I think actually one of the largest challenges in the design of this product is actually along the lines of what I just expressed, what I said is quite complicated. <laughs> mm -hmm. So how do I make it obvious to the user what this means and why it's important, right? 
So yeah. it's like it's important uh, when we go through our initial process with the with the people that buy the product, but also the people that use the product aren't necessarily the people that buy the product. So right, right, yeah. And the, the first kind of objection that comes up as a as a potential customer, like in the in that mindset, is wait a minute, but everybody in my company doesn't do things the same way. And how do you standardize? Like who does actually use an email that you can connect to? Some people might use Outlook. Some people might use Gmail. Some people might just remember that they had an agreement that there's a call. So how do you how do you really make sure that that data is somewhat standardized and works across the company? Or how do you correct for it if, it, if it's not and still find useful, glean useful information? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a... Um... That's a big area of focus for our data science team is figuring out what the signals actually are mm-hmm. and what the source material for the signals can be. I think we work quite well in situations in which a team we're deploying against a team and the team has standard tools. Mm-hmm. So we're not like uh, we're not great at the you know three year enterprise deal cycle yet. That's not like the the thing that we can really move because those those deals require. A lot more creativity and kind of in the in the vein that you're talking about like people have different methods with that mm-hmm. uh, we're really good at moving kind of the middle of the sales team that is not your like top 10 percent that makes 80 percent of the revenue but rather your like middle 60 that makes that chunk of the 15 to 20 we can move those guys up if they mm-hmm. have a pattern and a repeatable cycle that we want them to adhere to mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so yeah, so what I'm hearing there is that it doesn't require the entire company to be even using the same. But if you if you have a whole sales team and they have some incentive to sort of align with the system so that they get better metrics, they will tend to do so, and then you can get those benefits of having having that kind of a, a standardized scale. And yep. then you get cleaner data, and then that whole cycle repeats because then it's more effective, and then people have more incentive to jump on board. Yep, totally. Um, I mean, I think something else that's really good about it also is that it drives a lot of transparency upwards and downwards. Mm-hmm. So rather than having, uh, you know, from a user end, there are, there are two people we're really servicing. There are the folks that are leading teams and the folks that are on the teams. Mm-hmm. From the folks that are leading, we have an opportunity to get them access to things that matter as opposed to just everything at once. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then for the folks that are on the teams, we have an opportunity to one, pay them in a way that's repeatable, which is nice and also not gameable. So like we reward on an actual email from a VP of the prospect as opposed to reward on like 50 emails you sent that day. Yeah. Um, but then additionally, we get them the ability to see what's important to their managers and execute against those things directly instead of having some guesswork in between. So kind of. Uh, distilling what the signals are that we care about brings this transparency across the board, which I thought was really interesting um, and was part of the reason I joined. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So how, how, how do you guys implement this or do you within your own company? Do your salespeople use your own, do you eat your own dog food as they say? We do. Um, yeah. The sales team has a program running and they continue to tweak it. And so like they've got different signals that they're paying attention to across the board. Um, and we also see that we're part of a bigger sales ecosystem, right? So like we, you can't run your entire, entire sales team off of just us. You also still need a CRM and you still need to be able to send email and, and schedule calendar invites. So, right. um, yeah, our sales team is very cool. I, our, uh, CRO Dean, who comes from Pendo, um, 
actually implemented us as a, he was a customer of ours and then came and joined us to run our sales team. And so has a lot of kind of the know-how for how to roll us out mm-hmm. internally, um, which is kind of cool. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So, so then what's the, what's the trickiest design, uh, question or conundrum you've run into, uh, in, in your brief four startup years? <laughs> I can also happily talk about any of the previous uh, iterations of even longer startup year cycles too. But oh I yeah, think... that'd be great too. We could even dive into that. What's let's let me expand the question then. What's the what's the most juicy design issue you've ever sunk your teeth into? Yeah. Um, okay. So before I was at Setsail, I was running a team at a company called Streetlight Data, and we were making a geospatial historical analytics tool for travel behavior using mm. location-based services data. Which... Wow. Hang on a second. Let me slow that down for a moment. <laughs> I, I caught all those words, but I just want to see if the, like, a geospatial location-based, was temporal a word in there? Um, temporal wasn't, but it, it historical was. Historical. Which... That's okay. Yeah. That, that, that registered as temporal. Yep. For travel behavior. Okay, great. Yep. <laughs> Continue. Uh, <laughs> I'll say that the, and the reason I pulled this out is because the user is unique, which is probably one of the biggest things that can, can contribute to a, uh, or is more unusual, I should say, unique is not really a scale, but, um, which is one of the things that can contribute to a design challenge. So this tool was primarily for transportation planners. And those folks live in consultancies or they live in government and they're responsible for figuring out how to plan the roads of tomorrow or potentially even like the multimodal transport, like trains and mm. uh, planes, trains, automobiles, right? Yeah, it's a fun one. Yeah, and it was great. Uh, the complexity of it was, you know, 50 notches up. You're dealing with three dimensions at least. You got X and Y on the map and then you also have T. So you're with like last month versus this month and that yeah. was always a big question then you're also tracking different kinds of movements where like the train is going to be like you're going to lose cell service and location tracking until you pop out of another location whereas a bus might kind of look like a taxi oh totally yeah uh, you're speaking exactly the sort of stuff that we were trying to solve so like and i think actually have largely solved more effectively than any other company prior I uh, still, I love all the work I did for Streetlight. I definitely didn't leave them on bad terms. So there's like a, uh, it's a good thing that we get to, I get to tell them, tell everybody that they're great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, Streetlight is, uh, the the problem was so nuanced in that I, we, the sort of thing that you're designing for in that scenario is a flow that has been around for a really long time and isn't necessarily accommodating of new ways of doing things. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of founders have this issue where they're trying to you know, like shift a market segment of an audience into using their thing instead of using the old thing. Right. And that's like a fairly easy shift if you're talking or easy is the wrong word, but it's much more um, apples to apples if you're talking about replacing a CRM with a new CRM. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about replacing excel and a dude on the corner with a clipboard counting how many people go right and left with a tool that looks at a map and has a bunch of charts on it it's like a much bigger gap right right 
Um, that was probably the biggest design challenge I had. And it was also the one that relied on my uh, ability to describe things visually the most because the, um, the way that you could communicate what the tool was doing required some diagrams to like even explain. So it's kind of this like edge of, you know, it, not everybody uses the same terminology for these traffic things. So how are we going to make it standard across? And ultimately, we ended up having to draw these kind of blocks, blo- box and spline diagrams to explain, like, this person was here and then ended up over there. <laughs> or like, this person was here, passed through there, and then ended up over there. And then correlate that to the stuff on the map. So I think, like, that's the gnarliest of all of the design challenges I've run into. Yeah. Well, I, I just disappeared mentally for a moment when I heard you use the word splines and I realized I haven't heard that word or seen it since I played SimCity and I watched them be reticulated on my way into the game as it loaded. Um, <laughs> it's actually a thing. You were reticulating <laughs> splines. Wow. Wow. They were reticulating splines. Uh, Asana, actually, I think in their loading screen, which is a great example. Oh, I've seen that there. Yeah, that's right. They pulled it out as a tribute. Um, they also have maybe my favorite like delight pattern, which is there's an Easter egg in Asana where if you find the checkbox, you can turn it on. And when you check off tasks, there's like a one in five chance that a unicorn will spray across the screen, or at least there was like a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> delight pattern. That's another great term. I had never heard of that, but not, like it makes perfect sense. There's these little, yeah. <laughs> um. What's the, the, the adage is kind of like surprise or the adage is the wrong way. The um, principle is like surprise and delight is how you sort yeah. of behaviors, right? Um, yeah. So in that one, it can't be every time you check the box because then you'll get desensitized to it. But if it's every like fifth time or if it's some random order, then you check the box and it makes you happy and it's like, oh, right. So yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it's interesting. Yeah, like so, so. Scrolling back to what we were talking about before, I jumped off on the splines tangent. All good. Uh, it's it's interesting that like the the previous challenge that you're describing with the cities and the infra- and the uh, tra- um, transportation infrastructure, there's this similarity to what you're doing now. Where, and I think this is kind of common across the industry. A lot of the founders that I've been talking to are in sort of this kind of challenge as opposed to where they were 10 years ago, where it used to be you build a tool, people jump on and they use your tool. And now it's like you build a tool and it's either going to replace four or five tools or integrate with six or seven tools and have to do both at the same time. And yep. yeah, that is really challenging. And what what? how do you approach that from a design standpoint so that people have this, as you said, surprise and delight while also deconstructing the entire model of how things work to adopt something different that is a mix and additional complexity in some sense to ultimately reduce the complexity yeah <laughs> to what they're doing uh, i mean i think that's a great it, it's a consistent problem you're right this is like we're in the third generation of technology tools at this point and before it was just nobody could do this and so we do it so we can win and that's fine mm-hmm. um and a little bit more like you can get this out of a bunch of places, but we can't do it all in one spot or it's all in one spot now, but that one spot is kind of bad. Let's do this new version. So I think like uh, for us at Setsail and certainly for us at Streetlight, we were dealing with the middle variety, which is like all of this is in a bunch of other places now. And we're going to try to bring it into a place that you can do all of your stuff in here. 
And I think um, for me at Setsail, actually, we've had a large discussion within the product team of like, what is it that somebody who is used to all of the sales tools that exist today, what do they need to attach to to feel like they know something in our tool? And how can we stitch the thing that they need to know about our tool into those things so that they have a bridge or they have a pathway to get to understanding how our tool works instead of us being like, hey, here's our stuff that we think is important. You should think it's important too. And then walking away, right? right. So I think like um, a great example is every sales leader wants to know about activity inbound and outbound from a sales team. That's like a just kind of a basic level thing. Our position is somewhat that actually the mo- more important things are pieces of that activity that are uh, synthesized across activities. Like we we care about things that are uh, actually predictors as opposed to just volume. However, we found that actually the best way for us to provide value to a sales leader is by stitching the volume and our stuff together, literally in the same visualization. So rather than having, hey, this is like the stuff that we think is important and it's on a page, it's also, here's the stuff we know you already think is important and here's our stuff and how that lines up with that stuff. So kind of like, you know, taking the activity metrics and plotting them over time, but also taking the signal or uh, fancy data product metrics and plotting that in the same timeline with the activity metrics so you can see yeah. what you care about, right? Yeah, so, so you're sort of bridging them from what they're used to to what what the value add is rather than having to change paradigms and like let go of, you know, let go of one tightrope to step on another. Or... <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, um, tightrope is not something like, you let go of. I don't know. That was a bad metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're asking people to take a big leap, right? Yeah. And it's not like, um, I had many, at even three companies ago, I designed a, a, uh, visual to describe a product migration we were doing. So we had folks that were used to the old system and we wanted to move them over to the new one. And it was a funny slide because it was literally like two planes and there was a ladder between the planes while they were in flight. Like we're trying <laughs> to get go down the ladder down the, to the new plane. It's like, uh-huh. that's, you know, and it, it described the emotion that the users had around this. It's like we can't expect them to just get on a ladder in midair and jump over to the other ship without making it worth it. Right. Yeah. And better even if we change the ship around them and they stay seated instead of like we make them go do this big journey and get out of one plane and get into another one. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Yeah. That's kind of a little bit of a tangent. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so, so we're kind of coming to, to our time here. And I want to ask you as the final question, in what way have you used all of this design thinking that we've been discussing in your personal life? Like how, how have you approached your decisions, whether it's career choices, relationship decisions, where to live, what to do, how to how to recreate, how how does this all play into the way that you think about design? Yeah, um, designers design everything. There's a great quote uh, by Massimo Vignelli in which he's like, "A great designer can design everything, or can mm. design anything." I think is it, but I definitely feel like that's true. Um, throughout my life, I would say like design thinking, uh, in its purest form for me is a, is a discipline of reordering the steps in a sequence. 
to get to the maximum benefit and potentially choosing different steps to plug into the sequence. So for example, uh, in using the, the asana example from earlier, like if we have a step in that sequence that says reticulating splines, then you're like embedding some delight into that waiting screen. So it's not mm-hmm. terrible. And then you get done and you get into the product. And that's great. Um, in the same way, if you pre plan ahead a little bit and have cocktails ready when people show up at your house before dinner, while you're still cooking, then you're embedding some delight into the wait time before dinner shows up. And like, that's definitely a way that I find myself thinking, even if I'm not doing it in a, I wrote these steps down kind of way, but it's right. certainly like a, a, a choice about, yeah, do I put a joke in the middle of this conversation or at the beginning so that we like laugh a little bit and then we get into whatever it is that we need to talk about that's complex and difficult, but we've had a little bit of laughter to land on. It's like, oh, that was still delightful. Right. Um, right. So you're thinking, you think about the arc and, and a lot of the things that you do uh, in addition to the task oriented or the, the goal directedness of it. Totally. Um, I'll give you one last example of this is that the names of meetings are an author, an, an excellent place uh, to put a little bit of delight. Mm. It doesn't have to be like one-on-one name and name. It can also be like, so for example, my, the head of product management, who's my peer and is a great collaborator with me here at SetSail, um, we're the heads of, right? So in our meeting, it's called Heady Stuff. Oh, like, nice. <laughs> this is an example of it kind of playing out at work in like a micro way, right? Like, yeah. you see the meeting, you laugh a little bit when you click on it, you get to the meeting a little bit happier, things go smoothly. Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing that as like as opposed to like disciplinary meeting, and then it's like like disciplinary meeting is like sitting on your calendar for like four days, and you're like, oh god, what is this? <laughs> or even a great example of like not enough information, right? So if you like, if you just even put a meeting on there that doesn't have anything aside from just you, you and the other person's name, yeah, then, then there's this unknown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Miles. This has been a really, really delightful conversation. Right on. Uh, It's been great to chat. I appreciate um, you guys reaching out. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.